Acts chapters 27 through 28 verse 10. And when it was decided that we should sail for Italy, they delivered Paul and some other prisoners to a centurion of the Augustan cohort named Julius. And embarking in a ship of Adramitium, which was about to sail to the ports along the coast of Asia, we put to sea, accompanied by Aristarchus, a Macedonian from Thessalonica. The next day we put in at Sidon, and Julius treated Paul kindly and gave him leave to go to his friends and be cared for. And putting out to sea from there, we sailed under the lee of Cyprus, because the winds were against us. And when we had sailed across the open sea, along the coast of Cilicia and Pamphylia, we came to Myra in Lycia. There the centurion found a ship of Alexandria sailing for Italy and put us on board. We sailed slowly for a number of days and arrived with difficulty off Nidus. And as the wind did not allow us to go farther, we sailed under the lee of Crete off Salmone. Coasting along it with difficulty, we came to a place called Fair Havens, near which was the city of Lycia. Since much time had passed and the voyage was now dangerous because even the fast was already over, Paul advised them, saying, Sirs, I perceive that the voyage will be with injury and much loss, not only of the cargo and the ship, but also of our lives. But the centurion paid more attention to the pilot and to the owner of the ship than to what Paul said. And because the harbor was not suitable to spend the winter in, the majority decided to put out to sea from there, on the chance that somehow they could reach Phoenix, a harbor of Crete, facing both southwest and northwest, and spend the winter there. Now when the south wind blew gently, supposing that they had obtained their purpose, they weighed anchor and sailed along Crete close to the shore. But soon, a tempestuous wind, called the Northeaster, struck down from the land, and when the ship was caught and could not face the wind, we gave way to it and were driven along. Running under the lee of a small island called Cauda, we managed with difficulty to secure the ship's boat. After hoisting it up, they used supports to undergird the ship. Then, fearing that they would run aground on the Sirtis, they lowered the gear, and thus they were driven along. Since we were violently storm-tossed, they began the next day to jettison the cargo, and on the third day they threw the ship's tackle overboard with their own hands. When neither sun nor stars appeared for many days, and no small tempest lay on us, all hope of our being saved was at last abandoned. Since they had been without food for a long time, Paul stood up among them and said, Men, you should have listened to me and not have set sail from Crete and incurred this injury and loss. Yet now I urge you to take heart, for there will be no loss of life among you, but only of the ship. For this very night there stood before me an angel of the God to whom I belong and whom I worship. And he said, Do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar. And behold, God has granted you all those who sail with you. So take heart, men, for I have faith in God that it will be exactly as I have been told. But we must run aground on some island. When the fourteenth night had come, as we were being driven across the Adriatic Sea, about midnight the sailors suspected that they were nearing land. So they took a sounding and found twenty fathoms. A little farther on, they took a sounding again and found fifteen fathoms. And fearing that we might run on the rocks, they let down four anchors from the stern and prayed for day to come. 
And as the sailors were seeking to escape from the ship and had lowered the ship's boat into the sea under pretense of laying out anchors from the bow, Paul said to the centurion and the soldiers, Unless these men stay in the ship, you cannot be saved. Then the soldiers cut away the ropes of the ship's boat and let it go. As day was about to dawn, Paul urged them all to take some food, saying, Today is the fourteenth day that you have continued in suspense and without food, having taken nothing. Therefore I urge you to take some food, for it will give you strength, for not a hair is to perish from the head of any of you. And when he had said these things, he took bread, and giving thanks to God in the presence of all he broke it, and began to eat. Then they all were encouraged and ate some food themselves. We were in all 276 persons in the ship. And when they had eaten enough, they lightened the ship, throwing out the wheat into the sea. Now when it was day, they did not recognize the land, but they noticed a bay with a beach on which they planned, if possible, to run the ship ashore. So they cast off the anchors and left them in the sea, at the same time loosening the ropes that tied the rudders. Then hoisting the foresail to the wind, they made for the beach. But striking a reef, they ran the vessel aground. The bow stuck and remained immovable, and the stern was being broken up by the surf. The soldiers' plan was to kill the prisoners, lest any should swim away and escape. But the centurion, wishing to save Paul, kept them from carrying out their plan. He ordered those who could swim to jump overboard first and make for the land, and the rest on planks or on pieces of the ship. And so it was that all were brought safely to land. After we were brought safely through, we then learned that the island was called Malta. The native people showed us unusual kindness, for they kindled a fire and welcomed us all, because it had begun to rain and was cold. When Paul had gathered a bundle of sticks and put them on the fire, a viper came out because of the heat and fastened on his hand. When the native people saw the creature hanging from his hand, they said to one another, No doubt this man is a murderer. Though he has escaped from the sea, justice has not allowed him to live. He, however, shook off the creature into the fire and suffered no harm. They were waiting for him to swell up or suddenly fall down dead. But when they had waited a long time and saw no misfortune come to him, they changed their minds and said that he was a god. Now in the neighborhood of that place were lands belonging to the chief man of the island, named Publius, who received us and entertained us hospitably for three days. It happened that the father of Publius lay sick with fever and dysentery. And Paul visited him and prayed, and putting his hands on him, healed him. And when this had taken place, the rest of the people on the island who had diseases also came and were cured. They also honored us greatly. And when we were about to sail, they put on board whatever we needed. Ooh. For some of y'all, that's as long as you've read the Bible in months. <clears throat> Great story. Hey, before I get started, a couple things real quick. Um, we'll come back to these in announcement time, but I'm just giving you a heads up. We got two fabulous things coming up that I want you to be a part of um, if, if you can. First is this Friday night. Um, we're going to do a night of discipleship. It's going to be kind of a deep dive. 
like trying to get a drink of water out of a fire hose sort of event, yet it's going to help us understand as a church and as individuals, when Jesus said, go and make disciples, what did that mean? We're going to talk about discipleship, what it means for our church to make disciples, what it means for you to be a disciple. Free meal involved, I would encourage you to come be a part of this event. Um, the second thing is our marriage retreat. If you're a married couple, we would love to have you. Um, and and th- this is later in April, uh, but today is kind of our deadline for registering to guarantee the price that we have. It, it, the, the price will actually go up and to guarantee a room for you and your spouse at the event. So for both of these and every other event, there's a QR code in your bulletin. We'll show the QR code again at the end of the service. Um, just scan that. You can find all the links how to register for these, but, but jump in and do those. We need both of those today is kind of a, a registration deadline for that. Um, amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me, right? Um, we sing that, but the guy who penned those words was a wretch. He, he was about the most despicable sort of humanity that you can have. Well, to begin with, he was a sailor. Sailors aren't known for being, you know, good, wholesome, milk-drinking you know, sort of people most of the time, but he was a sort of sailor that hopped on ships that went from England to northern Africa, ripped people from their homeland, put them on the boats, and then took them back to be slaves. He was a slave ship merchant, eventually a slave ship captain, uh, and both his business and what he was involved in was just terrible. Uh, You add to that the fact that his lifestyle was just despicable. He was a wretch. His name is John Newton, and John Newton was just a broken, awful human being. But one day, the boat he was on got caught in a storm, and the storm was too much. Sailors are trying to bail the boat, and they're trying to get get out. They're trying to survive in the middle of a storm. Uh, Storms have this amazing ability to put you at the end of yourself. And John Newton had bailed and and went to the edge and tossed out and was, was doing some things trying to secure the boat. He walked away about this far. He turned around, and another man walked to the place where he was just standing. And just like that, that man was pulled overboard and was gone. And he was confronted there with his own mortality, his own sense of, that could have been me, life could be over. The storm, this massive storm where another set of sailors felt helpless sent him on a journey that led him to trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, to place his faith in Jesus. And, and over a period of time, have a crazy life transformation that, that not only changed him, but changed much of England in so many ways. He was a... He actually eventually became a pastor. And 250 years ago this week, that's why we sang it today, he wrote the lyrics of of that song we just sang, the song that's the most well-known and famous hymn hymn here in our uh, United States. And, And as a pastor, he began to fight against the slave trade. Total repentance. So much so that as a spiritual leader, he led a man, he was a pastor and a leader for a man named William Wilberforce who actually got uh, elected to be in parliament. You can, st- 
You could read about William Wilberforce and, and study him, but William Wilberforce was the single human being who also was a follower of Jesus, who led to the abolition uh, or the end of the slave trade and eventually the abolition of slavery in England. And his influence led to a lot of the things that eventually spilled over here in the United States. And it all happened because a man was in a storm on a boat. Storms are crazy things because they, they catch us off guard and we're not sure what to do. They leave us helpless. And, and, and we live in a world that looks at us, why do bad things happen to good people? Why do storms, why is there suffering? And there's not always an easy, straightforward answer. Yet we can know today that just because we don't know the purpose and the answer of that question doesn't mean that the God who created the heaven and earth doesn't have an answer. And, and today we're talking about a ship trip in a storm. This is what we expect, okay? If you've been following along in Acts, okay, we've been studying this amazing story of the spread of the gospel to the ends of the earth and how God is using uh, the second half of Acts, specifically this one guy named Paul, right? And Paul has been traveling from town to town to town. He's the gospel globetrotter. He's been planting churches and preaching Jesus everywhere he goes. Everywhere he goes, there's new churches planted. There's new believers in Jesus. They are now following Jesus. He goes to the next town, repeat, repeat, repeat. And the gospel is spreading through his ministry. But he returned to Jerusalem, kind of the, the hometown where he kind of grew up. Uh, and when he got there, um, the, the people who were in kind of the central city of um, Judaism, of the Jewish people and their culture and their, their kind of, their whole religion and their kind of the capital of what it meant to be in Israel. And when he got there, he got sideways with the Jewish people because they didn't like him preaching the resurrection of Jesus Christ as the hope for all people, especially for Jews. But they also didn't like the fact that he was promoting the idea that God's plan was for Gentiles, for non-Jews. And we end up with this long journey that we've been on for the last several weeks. It's almost like Luke pulls the emergency brake on the story. It had, like if you've been with us, it had been popping and moving, popping and moving. And then all of a sudden, uh, Paul's arrest, his different trials, he makes five defenses before some before the Jews, some before Roman rulers. Uh, he ends up standing in front of the three most powerful people in the Middle East at that time, representing the Roman government. It shares the gospel with them. He doesn't just stand up and say, let me tell you why I'm innocent. He points them to Jesus as their only hope. It's beautiful. And they all find him not guilty, yet because of politics, they're, they're not going to let him go. And what happens at the end of here is that Paul is then in the city of Caesarea, and I'm going to ask, ask my guy back there at the back to go ahead and put up our map up here. We're, we're, I got my map and my pointer one more time here. Okay, so here's Israel right here, the, the nation that's in the Middle East, okay? See Egypt here, Syria here. This is all what is modern-day Turkey up here, okay? And Paul had been traveling to all these cities. He ends up in Greece. But he ends up back here in Jerusalem, okay? Or down here in Jerusalem. I'm sorry, down here in Jerusalem. Those of you who are at home watching online, I'm sorry, you can't see my pointer. You're just going to have to look at the map, all right? But he ends up up here on the coast at Caesarea. See it right there, Caesarea, which is the city that is kind of the Roman capital in, uh, the Roman capital in the Middle East here. So Jerusalem is the Jewish seat of power, but Caesarea is the Roman seat of power. He ends up there for two years under house arrest, even though every Roman official said he was innocent. And at the end, the two main guys at the, at the end of this part of the story, Agrippa and Festus, the governor and the king of this region, agree that he is innocent, but Paul had appealed to Rome, which means that Paul finally said, if you're not going to let me go free, 
you're not going to give me over to the Jews because they will kill me. I appeal to Caesar, which means I am appealing to the highest court in the world. As a Roman citizen, I have the right to go to Rome. Now, the reason this is important in the story is because Paul also had a promise from God as God appeared, as Jesus appeared in front of Paul. Jesus made an appearance. I don't know what that looked like. I don't know how that went. But Paul knew for sure he had met with Jesus. And Jesus told him, hey, you're going to make it to Rome. And you're going to stand before Caesar, the emperor of Rome. Nero, you will stand before him. And Paul had this assurance based on that promise. Now, here's what you expect. We're reading along. We're cruising the racks of what you expect is the story to go, all right, they put him on a boat in Caesarea. And man, we just sailed to Rome. It was beautiful, smooth seas. It all went great. Chapter 27, 1 through chapter 28, verse 10 is unexpected. We do end up with Luke, the author of Acts, giving us the most detailed picture of ancient Middle Eastern maritime practice in all of ancient literature. And he is super detailed. But instead of a nice smooth journey on glassy seas with wind and in their sails and God blessing them and getting them there because Paul knew he was going to Rome, it's a promise, right? We end up with a crazy, crazy story of a storm and a shipwreck and and, and sailors, and you know, you expect, you know, the dun 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 You expect Johnny Depp to walk out of the shadows in the middle of it, right? And, and, and in this whole story, it's just like storms. Like, why do we go here? Why, why do we need to spend eight minutes in church reading this story about a ship and get details about? This ship that ends up out in the sea and ends up uh, out of control and eventually ends up shipwrecking. And, and then the part of the story that will end up with my wife having nightmares for a week is Paul gets bit by a viper that jumps out of a... Like, what in the world? This is not... Like, he's God's guy. He's the most faithful missionary. He has served God with his whole life. This is not the way it's supposed to go. Except the Bible keeps bringing us and confronting us with this reality. Y'all, storms happen. Storms happen. We don't see them coming. We, we, like, we're not sure what they mean. And we sit back and go, wait a minute, God. I'm serving you. I'm trusting you. This is, my life is for you if you're a follower of Jesus. This doesn't make sense. This is not the plan. This is not the way it's supposed to go. Look real quick at verse 20. When neither sun nor stars appeared for many days, and no small tempest lay upon us, all hope of our being saved was at last abandoned. When he says here, when Luke says no sun or stars, that's not just a statement of, man, we, we couldn't see the stars at night, and it was so cloudy, we couldn't. In, like, they don't have a compass. They don't have their iPhone to pull out and say, which way are we going? There's no Google Maps or Apple Maps on their phone. They are adrift at sea, and the sun and the moon and the stars are the source of their navigation. They have no idea where they are. 
They have come to the point of helplessness. And in the point of helplessness, they now have lost all hope. How did they get here? And, and what does this teach us about storms and how do we navigate the storms of our life? Well, let's tell the story real quick. Back up to the map. Okay? Here we go. So they hopped on a boat, a small boat over here. And as you read the story of what happens, they get on a smaller boat that is designed to stay closer to shore. It's not designed for the open sea out here and out here. It's designed to stay in these shallower regions between these islands and here. And, and what they do is they basically go from town to town. But the story tells us that as they're traveling on this smaller boat, and, and then they get on this larger boat, we'll talk about in a minute, the winds are not favorable. And so it takes longer than they think it is. But we're told that they end up by the Lee of Cyprus. What is that? It means that they are using this island as a protection from these winds that are already kind of intense, and they're not going for them. They're not good sail, you know, good uh, easterly wind, hopping into sail, pushing them out. Um, it, it's a wind that, that battles. But what they do is they end up uh, over here uh, in Myra, the city here in southeast, what we would call modern-day Turkey, and they switch boats here. They find a boat that actually came from down here, Alexandria, Egypt. See it down here? Uh, at this point in time, Italy or, or Rome exported between 150 and 200,000 tons of wheat they were dependent on the breadbasket of the Middle East and Egypt to give them the wheat they needed to survive as the empire. And so there are all these boats that are leaving the port of Alexandria, and they're, they're coming through sea. They would come up here, hit here, uh, especially this time of year. They, they may need to winter. They may not want to get out here in the open sea, and we'll talk more about that. Uh, but they join a boat that is there that is full of grain and has 276 people on it. The 276 people are sailors, Roman soldiers, prisoners. That's who they are. There's a group of prisoners that end up on the boat with Paul. More than likely, these are all prisoners that were condemned to die. They're going to Rome so that Rome can put them and make sport of them while they execute them. That's probably what's happening. The uh, soldiers are Roman soldiers. They're not necessarily sailors. Some of them may be, but then you have a ship full of the guys who know what they're doing. They hop on this boat, and this boat, they begin to move. They end up over here at this port. Then they come down here to Crete, which is a good kind of middle ground, and they get to fair havens, which in the Greek literally means good port. And when they get in the good port, Paul goes, hey, it's close to winter, and we do not want to be out here in the middle of October, November, December, January, February. Just not a good place to be. We don't, like, the, the Mediterranean at this point, in t- the Mediterranean during that season is notorious for being incredibly dangerous. We just need to stay here, winter here, and wait till better, better sailing conditions. But the captain and the um, uh, owner of the ship said, no, there's a better port over here in Phoenix. We'll get over here. It will get us moving quicker. Uh, we can do that. And, and the text literally says they ignored Paul. We would ignore Paul. Here's this little old Jewish guy who's telling the captain of a ship, you know, it is what you ought to be doing. Now, by this time, Paul had been on ships hundreds of times. He knew this stuff. In fact, we're, we're told in the book of 1 Corinthians that he had already been shipwrecked three times by this point in time. This is shipwreck number four for Paul, at least. Okay? And so he knows his way around. And they ignore him and say, we're going to make it at least to Phoenix. There's a better port there. It's a better place for us to winter. But then they get out to sea, good southerly winds. Man, it looks like the gods have blessed them. Until... 
until the, 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 the word in the text is literally where we get typhoon from. There is a massive hurricane force storm. And what happens is once they are blown out, they never make it up here to Phoenix, they're blown out into the ocean, open ocean. We're told that they're fearful for the, uh, to, to be pushed down here in this area. This area down here was known for its shallow and very dangerous water. Ships wrecked all the time there. They're pushed out to open sea. And, and then we see the sailors doing what sailors know to do. They drop an anchor and lower their sails. They begin to bind the ship. They take ropes or chains and they go around the ship and they begin to tighten these things down so that the, the boards on the ship won't break apart. There's something now holding the ship together. They're bailing water and all this sort of stuff. And then they start throwing things like their cargo, their, um, their, 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 their um, furniture in the, over, overboard. But this goes on for 14 days and they are at sea and pushed out and there is no hope. And you have these sailors who hit the end of their resources, who hit the end of their abilities, who hit the end of what they can do to save themselves. Later in the text, we see them praying. That is not crying out to the God of heaven. They are crying out to their gods, but their gods cannot bring daylight sooner and cannot do anything with the storm. So they've gone from self-reliance to crying out to the deities of their own making who can't do anything with this. And they are helpless out at sea at the mercy of the wind and doomed. Now, now folks, this is life. I would love to stand up here and preach a gospel that says, you know, if you're a believer in Jesus, the world has storms, you won't. You won't ever have these moments. Except this story shows us that there are three guys on this boat who love Jesus with all their heart. Paul, this buddy that he has that is from the city of Thessalonica who's been traveling around with him. Uh, his, his name is mentioned here in verse, um, I, I gotta find it, I forgot to write this down in the text, but it's in verse, uh, let's see. Well, shame on me. But you can find it there. He's got one of those long names. I can't remember it right off the top. Here it is. Aristarchus, a Macedonian, verse 2, a Macedonian from Thessalonica. He's with him, and Luke is with him. Luke is not named by name, but Luke, the author of Acts, keeps saying, we, we, we. He is like, and it's not all the way home, by the way. Uh, uh, he, he is just like, some of you are just now getting that. That was just off the top of my head and awful. I'll admit it. Uh, he is, he is saying, we did this. He is with them. Three dudes on this boat. And, and, and what we want to say is, it's not the way, like Paul's not supposed to be in a storm. He's supposed to get to Rome, preach Jesus. That's God's plan, right? Except here we have this storm. But it's the three men in the ship that mean all, make all the difference in the world. You don't see Paul and these guys losing heart, nor do they start questioning God in the storm. It is their presence in the storm that helps the rest navigate the storm. This is a world of storms. People go through hard stuff all the time. You never see it coming. Your Google Maps and your, your, your little weather app is not going to prepare you for the moments in life where you didn't see them coming. I was on the phone with a guy this week, and he's a guy that... Um, I have a, a coaching relationship with 
uh, who is a church planter, and he planted a church uh, in Iowa, and the Lord's been blessing it, just like things are going along, and they got their plan together. They're seeing people come. He's telling me the story of this new person who came to faith in Jesus, kind of out of the blue, and he's like, man, it's the easiest witnessing thing I ever, I just kind of said, here's who Jesus is. They're like, I'm in. I need him so bad, and boom, they're baptized. Like, the Lord is working, and then um, they go do normal doctor stuff, and, and they get a phone call where they find out that his wife has cancer. It's not, that's, not, that's not the script. The Lord's blessing them. They, they're doing what God has called them to do. They're serving the Lord with all their... This is not the script, right? But, but the storm still is coming. It's on them. They're navigating this. They don't know where the wind's going to blow them. They, they don't know what to do. They, they're going to end up in spaces and places where there's others who are taking that same journey. And, and here we find Paul and Aristarchus and Luke on a boat with 276 men. The 276, 273 men have lost hope. But they're there in the storm. And that's the beauty of this story. That's what happens. Paul stands up and speaks, and in the, in, in the speech he gives, he, he shares with these people on the boat about a vision that is offering hope to them. Angel appeared to him, told him, hey, listen, here's the way it's going to work. You're not going to lose your life. You will lose the boat. That's awful for a sailor in the first century, but you won't lose your life, and God is going to save us all. Uh, an angel came and told me this, but Here's, look at verse 23. Find it in your Bible. Let your eyes look down and see what Paul says in verse 23. Paul says, for this very night, there stood before me an angel of the God to whom I belong and whom I worship. There, there stood before me an angel to the God I belong and who I worship. Now, Paul is not looking at him and going, your gods are valid, mine are, they, like we all have our own spirituality. This is my God, that's your God. He, he is referring to the true God, the maker of heaven and earth, the only God who saves. This is Jesus who is God. He is referring to Christ, uh, the Trinitarian God of the Bible. Um, the, the only true hope in life and death is the God that, that Paul is speaking of. That is made abundantly clear in this entire text. He is the Lord of the storm. Yet, for Paul at this moment, the language is really important because here's what he's saying. He's saying, listen, I'm here at this moment. I may not have any answers for the storm. I know the Jesus who stood up on a boat and went, peace, be still, and the waves stopped. But that hasn't happened yet. We haven't eaten for 14 days. We haven't seen the sun, moon, or stars. This is awful. It's hard. Yet. Two, two things come out of this text. And if you're a follower of Jesus, this is who you are. And if you're not, I'm just telling you, this is your hope in the storm. The first thing that we see Paul saying is, the God whom I belong. Paul is saying, listen, here's the deal. I am not my own. Whatever happens here, I don't belong to me. And therefore, the God who owns me, the God who bought me, you, like, you are not your own. You were bought with a price. 
Christ has redeemed you, follower of Jesus. You are not yours anymore. And if I know that I am not my own, I can know that Christ, the maker of heaven and earth, owns me. I can look at the storm and go, I may not understand it. I may not be able to navigate it, but I do know this. I am his. I am his. I belong to God, right? And the second thing he says is the God whom I serve, whom I worship. The word worship, there are several words for worship in the, in the original language, but the word worship here is not like talking about singing and, 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 and celebrating and lifting our hands and raising our voices. It's not talking about praying. It's talking about worship through service. It, it, it was used of, uh, this word was used in the, um, the New Testament time to refer to objects of worship that would be used in the temple. And they were set apart, like you have two lampstands, but this lampstand here is going to be used at somebody's home. This lampstand here is going into the temple and is going to be used for the service of God. It is set apart to be used as an object of worship to God. And here's what Paul's saying. By, by using this word in the text, here's what he's saying. The God that I belong to is also the God that my whole life is his. I am set apart to be an object of service, worship through service, for his purposes, his calling, his, his glory, his fame. That's who I am. But what we want to do is we want to look like the sailors and bless it, have the God of the universe bless it. We want to lean into our own resolve, our own resources, our own ideas, even our own spirituality. The storm comes and what we want, we look at God and we shake our fists and we get angry because we're like, hey, this is not the way I plan my life. And I don't like hurting like this and I don't like feeling the weight of this. And I don't like being out of control. Yet, yet if, if I understand the Bible correctly, everything in our struggle is to remind the follower of Jesus that I belong to Jesus and everything that I am is his. And so if I die in the storm, my, my life is an object of worship for his fame. That, that's what, it, what, what Paul is looking. He's literally looking at these people going, let me tell you about the God I serve. That God appeared to me last night, but listen, you need to know I'm his and my life is dedicated to his worship, his fame, his, I, I, I am set apart for, for this. When we read this story, if, if you've read enough of the Bible, you ought to be drawn to another story in the Bible, right? There's another storm in the Bible that we are told about out that may have been happening right about in the same waters that this one is. A guy named uh, Jonah who is also dedicated to the service of God. He's a prophet who is also like supposed to live his life as one who is owned by God. But in that story, Jonah is told, hey, go to Nineveh, go east. And he goes, I don't like those people. And out of racism, and out of this, this feeling like, I don't think those people deserve your grace. Therefore, I don't want to tell them about Jesus. He hops on a boat and goes west and ends up in these same waters. And what we're told in the story is that God hurls, he appoints a storm. The storm comes from the hand of God. And, and here we have this story of Jonah who ends up in a similar situation, a similar tale. But this time it is God lovingly catching Jonah's attention 
to show him that he can't hide from God, he can't run from God, that he is his. The storm for Jonah is a reminder of a wayward prophet who was running from God of the truth that Paul understood. And so we have Jonah who ends up in a storm because he ran from God, but we have Paul in a storm because he was faithful. He wanted the message to go to people like the Ninevites that he didn't like, that he didn't know, that, that didn't see the world the same way he did. And we're supposed to see this storm and wrestle with this idea uh, of, of how this storm is going and how this storm shapes Paul and shapes the moment what God is doing in the storm. And so pictured them on this boat, pushed out to sea, no idea where they are, 14 days being tossed and they are at the complete mercy of the wind and they have lost hope except there's three guys in the boat. There's three guys in the boat who are in the storm with them. But they belong to God, and their lives are for the fame and glory of the one who is, is the king of the storm, the Lord of the storm. And, and what we do is we see a couple things, two things, that, two realities that followers of Jesus can know when the typhoon blows. That will both help us navigate the storm, but also help us figure out what it looks like to live for his beauty and his fame in the storm. I would love to stand up here again and tell you, hey, listen, here's the deal. Jesus always says, peace be still when the storms come. But he did not in this case. And some of us will go through seasons and times of life where I feel like I've lost all hope. I just wish the wind would stop. Just wish I could drop a true anchor that would latch onto something and hold on. I just wish I could sit down and eat. That's what's happening here, right? And the first thing that we see is, is this trust in the fact that the truth of God's providence over the storm. Providence just means his, his sovereign rule when you can't see his hand. The Bible's full of stories proving providence that we may feel like our lives are random and out of control and nothing makes sense, yet God is orchestrating the events of our life and of the world to bless his people and, and cause all things to work together for his purpose. And so providence is, is how we don't see it in the moment, but at the end of the day, we can look back and go, man, I saw that God was in this and God was working things out. This whole story, like every one of these stories, is stories of providence. We're, we're driving my oldest son is in the car seat in the back seat. He's just old enough to kind of be aware of the world around him, you know, figuring things out. And it's pouring rain, right? And I, being the dad I am, I like to, you know, have a little fun with my kids. And so we, we, we're driving and we hit these overpasses, right? <laughs> and you know what happens when it's pouring rain, you go underneath an overpass for just a minute. You go, stop. Guess what? The rain's going to stop. And so I'm like, watch this, watch this. Stop. And the rain stops, and he's like, whoa, that's pretty cool. We go out, and then it starts raining. He's like, oh, it's raining again. Next overpass, stop, and the rain stops. It's like, ah. So now he's going to try it. We're driving, it's pouring rain. And my, my son from back seat, back seat goes, stop. And you know what happened? It stopped. And I was like, oh, snap, what do I have in the back seat here? 
man, if it could just work that way, right? If it could just, if it could, like if I just prayed it, it would stop. Most of the time, we don't have an overpass. There might be a second reprieve. We may yell at the wind and the waves all we want to. They don't stop. Not at our command. Not at our command. Yet, the story is about the Lord who has providence in the storm. We see this in the, the story of Jonah. Jonah chapter 1, verses 4 and 5, we're told that the Lord hurled. I love, if you read Jonah, the Lord hurls a lot. He's hurling all the time. And here the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship was threatened to break up. Then the mariners were afraid, and earth uh, cried, and each cried out to his God, and they hurled the cargo that was in the ship and the sea to lighten it for them. Do you see the parallels here? But this time, the, the, the Jonah story is because the prophet of God is running from the Lord. And, and the, the Acts story is because the prophet of God, the, the man of God, is, is being faithful to the call of the Lord. You can't determine if the storm is because of your bad actions are good. Like, you can't get caught in that. These storms are not about karma, folks. They're not. Okay, they're not. They're not about that. In fact, if you read the Jonah story, the storm is not karma, it's grace. It's not God going, all right, you're bad. I'm going to get you now. And everybody who's on the boat's going down with you because you ran from me. It is God's loving pursuit of his wayward prophet. It is his, his providence. So they come to him. He's asleep in a boat. And when the sailors have lost hope, they come to him. And they ask Jonah about who he is and where he's from. Listen to what Jonah says. Then they said to him, tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. And what is your occupation? Where do you come from? What is your country? And what people are you? And he said to them, I'm a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and dry land. Jonah gives the right answer. The God we had made heaven and earth, made the sea and dry land. He is the Lord of the storm. We don't always live like we understand that, but we need that driven into our hearts. This is why we see in the story that, that Paul elaborates, sorry, I hit this, that this is not his first shipwreck. It's not his first storm. How can Paul be this guy in the storm? It's because he's not the first time he's been there. And the other storms of life obviously prepared him for this moment. But, but at the heart, he's just like, hey, I'm not at the mercy of the wind and the waves. They don't control this. It is not random. It is not purposeless. The wind and the waves don't rule the universe. Now, now if, like I said, followers of Jesus, you're in this room. You need to know that everybody in this city is trying to make sense of the universe right now. They're trying to understand why bad things happen, why their lives are out of control, why the storms come. When they're in good times, they, they, they just want to make the most of it. And, but, but they turn to all kinds of things. They have objects of their worship. They have things that they're leaning into, they're holding on to. They are self-reliant people who think they can, they can bind the ship themselves and, and, and they'll be fine. If they just do the right things and lean into their own abilities, they can make it. They are people who are leaning into all kinds of things as ultimate. And so they worship uh, sports. They they worship their kids, they worship money, they worship fame. And what happens in the storm, what happens in the storm is that real quick, when you are at the end of your own resources, 
what you think will save you is exposed. What you think will hold on to you and, and get you through the storm will be revealed and you will begin to see it either, you will try to trust in it or you'll begin to see those things taken from you and you will curse the world and curse God. And in the midst of this, the God of providence is always inviting us back to himself and it is his loving, gracious, it's not karma, it's his loving, gracious call to all of us that there is a Lord of the storm. It, it, there's an interesting phrase in the text Look again at verse 24. Verse 24, he says, Therefore I urge you to take some food. Paul's talking. Take some food for it will give you strength. For not a hair is to perish from the head of any of you. They're near the end of this ship voyage. And he's like, man, we haven't eaten for 14 days. And you're not going to be able to see this through tomorrow. Tomorrow's day, the last day. You've got to get something in your stomach. You've got to eat it. And he says, for not a hair on your hair, your hair on your head will perish. Now, as you're reading this, if you're reading the whole Bible and reading it carefully, and especially you're just reading Luke. If you don't remember, Luke wrote the Gospel of Luke, which is about the life story of Jesus, and the book of Acts, which is about this missionary adventure where the message of Jesus is taken to the world. You read that, all of a sudden something should have stood up, the hair should have stood up on the back of your head and said, oh, wait, wait, I've heard this before. Because not a hair on your head will perish came out of somebody else's mouth. Now, in this case, Paul is literally looking at these godless, idolatrous sailors, Roman soldiers, condemned prisoners, and he's looking at them and going, man, when the day ends, when the day ends, we're going to make it through this. Yet, he is quoting words from Jesus where Jesus is talking about persecution and suffering that followers of Jesus will experience. From Luke chapter 21, listen to the words of Jesus. You will be delivered up even by parents and brothers and relatives and friends, and some of you they will put, put to death. Put, put to death. You'll be hated by all for my name's sake, but not a hair on your head will perish. Wait, wait, wait. You mean if the, if the storm is my end? Yes, it's not your end. Not a hair in your head. If, if you die in the storm, the promise of Jesus is that not a hair on your head would perish. I love that Luke, hearing Paul, is echoing the words of Jesus, looking at these godless sailors going, today... The promise is this. We're going to make it to shore. But, but for those who know Jesus, that promise is for all of life, all of eternity. By your endurance, you will gain your lives. Hang in there. Don't let go. God is Provident. He is the one who actually controls the storm. I may not understand it. I may not make sense of it. I do know that God is doing a work in my life through it. I, I can't make sense of this, but at the end of the day, I can drive an anchor that says, listen, I am his. I worship him. He is con in control of the storm. The second thing we see is God's purpose is in the storm. God's purpose is in the storm. And on one level, we have to look at it and go, we, we won't always know. 
Like, we're not going to get down to the point where we could say, well, I knew exactly what God was doing at this storm of life. Sometimes we can look back and see God's hand and God's purpose and God's glory in the storm. But other times, it, we may not have all the answers. But when we know Jesus, the creator of heaven and earth, the sovereign king of the storm, we know that God is accomplishing his pers- purpose and it's through us. And so, so Paul had already heard, you will stand before Caesar. He knew that. He knew that, like, he's not going to, like, Paul's not going to perish. But he also heard a word from the Lord that says, I'm going to rescue these guys on behalf of you. There's a moment where a group of them try to cut the, um, like, they're saying they're setting down an anchor when they see a, a, a beach. They're like, I'm getting off this boat. The sailors are like, I'm bugging out. And Paul turns to the centurion and he goes, if they hop off, you ain't going to get saved. Wait, I thought the promise was they would all get saved. Yes, but we got to do it together. That's the way God's going to work here. It's all of us or none of us. Now, when I say none of us, Paul's like, I'm going to make it. Jesus promised. But you can't be saved. You need sailors to get this ship to shore and keep it from breaking up in a way that destroys you. So they, they cut the lifeboats off. That's the last thing you do. We end the, end the story with, if you can swim, make it. If you can't, grab a board. Like, that's the way the story ends. That's how they're saved, right? But uh, what we see is Paul, God is at work here, and Paul is even uh, telling them. He kind of takes charge. There's this beautiful leadership uh, that, is, that flows out of his, his security, his trust in the Lord. So, so in this, like, what do we learn about God's purpose for us. And here's the deal. The storm, no matter what other purposes, the storm is that drive you to helplessness and back to Jesus. For Jonah, he'd run away. What's the purpose of the storm? To get thrown in the ocean, get swallowed by a fish, and the fish is going to take him right back to where he started, take him back to his mission, back to his purpose. But he met Jesus in the fish and found out that salvation belongs to the Lord. For Paul, it's just holding on to what he knows and what he trusts. Listen, it, no matter what the storm is, what, what, what you go through, the storm is going to reveal what you trust and what you believe will save you. And there is only one who can. There is only one who can. And so for us, it's, it's pulling us back to him. But, and for the purpose of this sermon, more importantly, what is God doing in the storm? And what he does is he puts three men on a boat in front of 273 other sailors who become a glowing, glorious example of people who don't fear the storm because they know the Lord of the storm. That's visible, and God saves because of it. As you read the story, the rest of the story, I stopped halfway through the story, and we're going to, real quick, boom, 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 here's what happens in the rest of the story, right? But if you read the story, and you read it through, and you pay attention to language, even in English, you start seeing salvation language. The Lord saved, or these people were saved, and they were rescued. But the language, there's a Greek word, there's a Greek word, sozo, that means to save, and there, the word sozo or it's other derivatives, other compound words that pull that word in are used at least eight times in this text. Most of the time in the Bible, we're talking about the fact that our God saves. From what? From our sin, hell, death. We're saved from God and his wrath that Jesus saves us. But Luke, inspired by the Holy Spirit, keeps writing that word, that language, into what happens here. And because Paul and his buddies are on the boat, look what happens. Who gets saved? What happens in the story? Well, first of all, we end up with the um, 
uh, condemned prisoners are saved. You have a group of soldiers who go, if prisoners get free, Rome will take our lives. We're going to kill all the prisoners. Yet because of Paul, on Paul's account, the centurion puts an end to that. And these condemned prisoners who probably deserve death, they're insurrectionists, they're murderers, they deserve to die on that boat before they go free. They are saved. The whole 276 persons are saved to shore. And you think, man, they're going to go to the beach and it's going to be a celebration. No, it's cold, it's rainy, it's windy. And, and, and all of a sudden, the, the native people build a fire just showing common grace. And then it happens. You don't see it coming. There's a snake on Paul's arm. And I love this moment in the story, right? Here's the natives going, justice finally got him. Now here, justice is not just saying what comes around goes around. They had built karma into the way they saw the world so deeply that justice was a goddess. You don't always beat human justice, but we know there's got to be something more, so justice is a goddess. They look at him and go, man, this guy must be a murderer because justice has finally gotten him. He's got the snake wrapped to his hand. He shakes it loose into the fire. It burns up, hopefully, or my wife ain't coming back. And, and in this moment, like, they sit back and they're like, all right, let's watch him. He's going to swell up and die. He ain't going to make it long. And Paul's sitting over there drinking his coffee and eating his, his dinner. And then they're like, oh, this guy must be a god. <laughs> That's just the way we work in the world, you know. You're a hero or a villain. Now, Luke doesn't specify this. But as you read this text and you see the beauty of it, you've got to know that there's a pause here because we jump right to this other guy. But what did Paul do at this moment where they were worshiping him as a god? Come on, help me out. Somebody's been around a little while. What did he do? He shared the guy. Listen, Luke's just implying it. Paul's like, I, no, we've already had this story in the book of Acts where somebody called, God, uh, called Paul a God. And he's like, no, Jesus is the true God. Like, he's, he's sharing the gospel. So we have these barbarians. We have this island of Malta. The gospel has not reached Malta. And Paul preaches Christ to these people. They are hearing about Jesus for the first time. They end up with this tribal reader, leader who comes to them. And uh, because of this crazy snake bite, now the tribal leader ends up involved and starts showing kindness to them. And in the house, they find out that this tribal leader's dad is sick and Paul heals him. And when they hear that Paul heals this guy, they start bringing all kinds of sick people. And Paul is sharing Christ, healing people. The power of the gospel is on display on this island of Malta. We can assume that the first church in Malta is planted because of a shipwreck. And listen, sailors are saved. Everybody gets off the boat. Criminals don't die. Everybody's rescued. We have a fire and, and a snake. Yet in that moment, uh, the, the, these people on Malta hear the gospel. There is favor towards Paul because there is favor towards Paul and his buddies the gospel goes forth, and all of this happened because Paul did not hop on a boat that went straight from Caesarea to Rome. The salvation, like Paul and his buddies who love Jesus are there to be a display of the glory of God to the lost world around them in this storm. I've seen this happen over and over and over again in people's lives. Christians going through a storm. They don't know if the storm ends in their death, their life. That they, they don't know how it's going to end. They, they lose spouses leave, financial collapse, like whatever the storm is. And 
the way they navigate the storm, people are looking at going, I don't know how to make sense of this. The storm. And God's grace in it. That's what this story is about. I am so thankful that Luke, inspired by the Spirit, chose and gave us this detailed story of the storm. Because it's a reminder to us that our faithfulness does not mean we're not going through it. That we can hold on to the one who knows us. If you're here today and you're a follower of Jesus, as the band comes up, we're going to sing to Jesus, the Lord of the storm. For some of us, the, the, the songs that we have coming up ought to just be moments where you just let these beautiful truths of the gospel sink deep into you and you, you get that bedrock trust in the Lord and re- be reminded that whatever wind is coming against you, the wind is not sovereign. For some of you here today, it may be that, that you have never tr- truly trusted in Christ. And, and we just want to invite you that we'd love to have a conversation about what it means to trust in Jesus, to hold on to him, to, to believe in him during the storm, to know him. John, John Rutten, Newton wrote these words that we've sung in this hymn, a couple of the verses that are part of it, where he says, through many dangers, toils, and snares, I have already come. This grace has brought me safe thus far. Grace will lead me home. When we've been there, 10,000 years bright shining as the sun, with no less days to sing God's praise than when we first begun. Father, we, we praise you because you are the Lord of the storm, and I know there's people in this room who are in it today. The wind is blowing They have battened down the hatches. They have lowered the sail. They have dropped the anchor. They are at the end of their own human resources. And they feel like the storm is sovereign in their life. I just pray that today you would remind them that you are with them and you are gracious and you are faithful. And that you are purposeful. Even if we can't know your purpose, Lord Jesus, remind us that you are purposeful and you are accomplishing your will in our lives and through our lives, even in the hardest moments. And may we be for this community a a hope, a beacon of light to a world that is broken. May, May we be a lighthouse in the storm for those who are hurting and point people to Jesus like Paul did. Thank you for his testimony and witness for Luke and Aristarchus on the boat. And Lord, we know that there's probably people that we're gonna meet in heaven who are on this boat who are on Malta because of the storm. And today we praise you for that. In your name we pray, amen.